0: In the ever-deepening and awakening of the Dhamma in our hearts, there are practices that are an enduring resource of real strength for all of us. They support us with a deep sense of confidence and faith in ourselves. And there's something so basic sometimes that we can often forget their value, their deep importance, their power uh, in our lives we can often underestimate their power to really transform us. And tonight I'd like to speak about the power of patience. The power of patience. So at the beginning of my practice, I became very interested when I was learning about the paramis, those forces of one's heart and one's mind, those forces of uh, potentialities that we have, each of us that we're born with, that can lead to total liberation for each one of us. And some of them are like resolve, perseverance, generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, morality, or living in harmony, just to name a few of them, and of course wisdom. And patience is one of them. And it's said in the Dhamma that with patience all of the others can be energized. All of the others can be empowered even more. So it's not a quality that gets as much attention and Dhamma talk time. And so I like to um, give this talk on, on patience. Also because my mother gave me that name when I was born. So I try to honor her during this time. So for this reason, it's good to bring it out and bring it from kind of what we think is the mundane to something that can be uh, highly spiritual for us and deeply valuable for us because of its far-reaching potential in our lives as spiritual beings. So I want to give it the nourishment of wise attention, and I hope you do too. I'll try to tell some stories that keep us a little more awake than facts and figures of the ten of this and the seven of that and the four of this about the Dhamma, even though those are really powerful experiences to hear about from the Buddha's teachings. So maybe patience can play a more spontaneous role in your lives, here on retreat, and then the ability to take it home with you in your everyday life can be really powerful, too. So patience activates a lot of other beautiful qualities that we can use in our lives. And we, I want to take the time to remind you today of all the different value and qualities that they can bring up for us. So we want to remember to uh, stay open to what can come from patience. And really recognize the other beautiful, virtuous uh, experiences that we can feel ourselves. So, first of all, patience gives us that gentle, persevering energy of endurance. And that's what we need a lot on a course like this, where it's, um, you know, nine days is many days for us to do this one practice over and over again. One of our teachers, Sayadaw Utejaniya, says that this practice is not like a hundred-yard dash. It's like a marathon. We really have to keep going with this, and we have to watch our balance, our energy, and how we handle ourselves, not just during the course of the day, but even during one sitting, or a part of one sitting, a part of one walking. So we have to remember uh, to stay open to the changing experiences that come in our practice because oftentimes we have this idea that if something comes up that isn't exactly calm, pleasant, and blissful, that something's wrong with our practice. But actually patience gives us the power to open to anything that comes up and not just to expect and be with the pleasant all the time because that isn't real. That isn't really the true experience of life. Actually, it's the patience to be with what is difficult that really helps us to grow. We don't really grow that much. It's beautiful when we have blissful experiences and we really need that deep, deep rest and that deep nourishment that comes from that kind of energy. But the growth that comes from being patient with what's difficult is enormous. It just really um, deepens our understanding of how it is to be as a human being on this earth and how it is to live a life where we can be with what is instead of how we want it to be. So, you know, I say all this um, because I'm I'm reminding myself, too. I'm, I'm not coming from a place of perfect patience. That's probably why my mother named me that. She probably knew what I would have to face. <laughs> so patience also helps us to maintain a quiet inner faith and confidence in ourselves so we can keep our practice moving in the direction of our highest aspiration and not take it all what big jump at a time just to be able to say, Okay, I can take it from here to the end of the sitting or from here to 10 minutes longer, from here for this next moment. You know, whatever we need to do to keep our aspiration practical and not so far-reaching that we always feel disappointed or discouraged. So it gives us that also gentleness, that enduring gentleness, yet the clarity that comes with that gentleness, the clarity of purpose, the be, the ability to be able to know how to turn our minds, to incline our minds to what we've come here for, and then to know that, okay, this is all right, this is good, that we've, we've maybe had to face something really challenging, but what do we do next? We acknowledge it, and then we turn the attention or turn our minds to the breath, or to the body experience, or whatever is necessary, whatever is predominant at that time. There's a sense of gentle clarity with whatever needs to be done at that moment. And then be able to relate to it, not as a, something bad, but it's related as an opportunity for greater wisdom to arise. The wisdom to know how to navigate. What goes on within us and what goes on around us in a way that uh, doesn't let us fall in giving up into giving up on ourselves, whether it's regarding our deepest inner journeys or our daily life uh, at home. So, for a number of people in Western culture, and maybe not all of us, but for um, the major part of the stream of society, patience is regarded as a weakness, usually. And it's such a quiet, reserved, humbling, unassuming quality that it can seem like it's really weak. But actually, it's so powerful. It can be so powerfully uh, important and uh, effective in our lives So in spiritual circles, like in the Dhamma and in many other spiritual um, quests and circles, it's respected and highly regarded. The Buddha said that uh, patience is the highest virtue, the supreme virtue. He would say that in many different ways. Because I've understood about the um, different virtuous qualities, like the paramis, that As I mentioned earlier, patience nourishes each one of them, makes each one of them more powerful. So this is from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. When it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind, and heart. And also, you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can have wisdom. If you lose wisdom, if your mind falters by emotions that take you over, then you have lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient, then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You even increase your strength. So this is from... uh, one of my or our grandfather teachers, Mahasi Sayadaw, the teacher of um, my major teachers in Burma, he said this strength of patience is capable of preventing hatred in our own hearts and in the hearts of others when we um, act it out in the world too. Those are my words. And he goes on to say that it resembles the force of an army. Patience is so powerful, it resembles the force of an army. So, <clears throat> one of the major teachers in my life has been Sedao Upandita, who recently passed away. Um, I think it was in a couple of months ago. He was greatly revered in Burma as one of the of very strict teachers. Um, but his strictness had a lot of compassion to it. He believed that everyone who was sincere about doing their practice could attain the highest gift of the Dharma. And so uh, I kind of fed off of his faith in in not only me, but in many of us who practiced through his um, guidance. He is one who is known as encouraging effort or energy but it's so mistranslated sometimes because he really encourages you to do your practice, but with an effort or energy that's continuity. That's a continuity of awareness, whether it's awareness in vipassana or awareness in our concentration practice. Whenever he sensed that in some way we were pushing or leaning into the future, wanting other than what's actually happening in the present moment, really not acknowledging what's going on, but just like pushing it away. Uh, There was clearly some imbalance that he could see in the practice. He would chant in Pali, in that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings uh, were recorded in, he would chant, Kanti Paramam Tapo Titika, and he would do that in his kind of special Burmese, um, beautiful Burmese accent. And that means patience is a supreme virtue. Just like the Buddha said, patience is a supreme virtue. Or it can mean the best devotion. Because patience gives us the devotion to our practice. It lets us really have that devotion that we need in our practice to keep going. So it's not, it, it, it's not devotion to something out there you know, that's going to bless us and all of a sudden will become everything we wanted to experience in life including the highest um, gems of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha but that it would give us this uh, devotion that would pay attention to what's happening within us and to be able to face everything that comes our way So through the 35 years of practicing and knowing him I found him very sensitive to energy and quite intuitive sometimes he would know what was going on with your practice more than you would know it was like he was kind of you know psychic in that way so even when one is walking into the interview room if there's just a little bit of your your head that's kind of more forward than your feet Um, Or is this a little bit of pushing he could really tell right away? And he would chant those words in Pali, patience is the highest virtue. And sometimes he would say the road to Nibbana or the road to the unconditioned is paved with patience. So, yes, there would be, um, I, I guess a few times, not several, but a few times, I would walk into the interview, and in walking into the interview room, that actually was very much part of your interview, how he would see you walking in. Just if you could open the door mindfully or go through the door mindfully, get there to the place where you would kneel and do your your, um, usual bows of, of venerance, veneration, and if you weren't completely mindful even in your how you were doing that, your whole uh, interview would be mindfully getting up and going back to the door and walking in again. And if then you know you he would be reminding you that there's some impatience he could see even in your walking, even in how you were presenting yourself in your bodily posture. So just kind of... Making your body do it all again, all over again really affected how the mind was. So just the way we walk around here will help us to be uh, more patient, pace ourselves in a better way. It said that the body affects the mind, and the mind affects the body. The mind can affect the mind, and the body can affect the body. You know those four ways. So actually, if we feel impatient, and we're striving, and we're rushing in our practice here, it's helpful to really slow down and to really take notice of our posture. You know, Are we just kind of really rushing to get to be in line you know, first or um, you know, rushing to get to a place where we're just going to be still eventually anyway? So, just notice how it is in the body can help patience to arise as well. So the path to freedom is paved with patience. Um, during one of my own personal retreats at the Forest Refuge a few years ago, uh, I recognized when I got there there was some subtle but some not so subtle moments. Of uh, comparing and judging and criticizing my practice, because uh, kind of looking more deeply into myself, I realized that I wanted something quicker than was actually happening. And you know, I'd gone there after a lot of um, service and work in the Dharma and um, tired, a bit weary. and I only have a month to be there. And so I wanted to make the most of it, so there was this kind of rushing ahead almost. And so I recognize that those moments were manifestations of impatience and like wanting something before they're naturally ready to occur. So of course, recognizing that we live in this culture of instant gratification, those expectations are lurking around all the time. They're ubiquitous, And they're so normalized in our society that it's almost that we feel automatically entitled right away. You know, to have these, what we call in our practice and retreat, these, what Upandita calls spiritual goodies, almost immediately. And we really have to do, we have to put our time in for that to happen. We have to pay attention to what's balanced for us and coming um, to what's scheduled for the whole retreat. We have to pay sometimes attention to when we need to walk rather than sit. Or maybe when we're sitting we feel really calm, quiet. There's clarity there. There's no sleepiness there. And maybe we decide just sit for 10 minutes longer and then go out and walk. You know, just... Really paying attention to our balance and not expecting something right away, but not a lot of times Upandita would ask me, is there expecting in the mind? And I would really have to look carefully and answer truthfully of course, if there was or not, because expecting is is just kind of this little itty bitty thing that turns into this huge desire and sense of entitlement. Uh, when it gets really big, that, you know, we deserve to have it because we've been here for, like, two days already. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, but sometimes after even, um, you know, it takes a few days. Sometimes just even towards the end of the retreat, we start to sense, wow, we're really getting deeper, understanding more uh, the calm, the concentration, the... Beautiful energy that comes, the joy that comes, equanimity that comes, is all due to the practice that we've put in uh, during the week, and those are the beautiful times we think, "Ah, oh, next time maybe a longer retreat," you know, to to really see the value of this. So, those that that kind of sense of instant gratification was lurking around for me during that time of uh, personal retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts a couple of years back and so when I recognized that impatience was there it was good to recognize that you know one of the paramis is truthfulness and paramis are those beautiful qualities of mind and one thing that we have to do is be really soberingly honest with ourselves about what's really happening And all of you are, um, those of you I've spoken with, are just so um, humbly honest with what's really going on with yourselves. So when you can really see that and really not just put words to it, but actually come to a place of feeling it, of really, like um, we've been talking about aiming, connecting with it, and sustaining the attention with it. Upandito used to call, say, Rub your attention on this, on that mental state, or on that emotion, just momentarily. It doesn't have to be really get into it and know why and where it came from and all of that, but really be with it, because that's a place where we understand deeply, oh, this, this impatience, this is painful, this is dukkha. And then that's when the mind will automatically understand that with wisdom. It's already seen it quite clearly and maybe uh, deeply seen the impermanence of it, the impersonality of it. And it's it's able to let it go then. But when we keep ruminating about it with words and trying to describe it and where it came from, etc., we're just going to be like a, a dog chasing our tail. So really feeling what's happening, actually being able to be honest enough. This is impatience. And this is wanting something that's not yet earned through practice, through just being with what's going on. So I realized, because of realizing that that was impatient, there was striving, striving for results. And I could hear Upandita's voice, the path to freedom is paved with patience. So it was helpful to remind myself many times that the ripening of practice, the ability to go deeper in in practice of concentration, practice of vipassana, whichever practice we're doing, it really has its own unique unfolding depending on conditions for us. So we really can't rush it. it. It can't be Rushed, it can't be at a pace that um, you know. Going, kind of doing more sittings or going back and forth more times on our walking path is is going to do us any good. We really need to know the balance uh, that comes with patience. So there's nothing to do but put forth this balanced effort. This um, what Upandita would say, gentle persevering effort. That means continuity. And um, I I remember so many times uh, leaving the doorway and just before I would left the point of hearing he would say something like, no gaps. I mean, really high bar. I I couldn't really, almost never get to that. But it means keep continuous. Keep your practice continuous. Even though sometimes we feel like we failed and we've lost a few moments or minutes or even hours, you know, just beginning again. Patience is the ability to begin again, over and over and over again. So I found when I was in that retreat um, on my own and I gave myself the the space to know in myself what's really going on here and to admit that to myself then I could really come close to it really know it um, in a way that wasn't kind of denying it, pushing it away putting it under a rug or talking around it so much, it was really just being with it then it was able to go on its own to do what it did next it may have come back but Yes, impatience comes back quite a few times. But really knowing it. And um, on that retreat, I found this... Somebody wrote a note somewhere. I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was tacked on the bulletin board. It was. Um, I was cleaning up um, and emptying garbage cans. That was my, my yogi job during that time. So I might have found it on a piece of paper... Little note paper, it's by Ralph Waldo Emerson. This quote that says, Adopt the pace of nature, her secret is patience. And so, you know, what we're exploring here is the nature of nature and, and that nature of nature within ourselves. So seeing how it goes, it doesn't go fast and furious most of the time. I mean, there are hurricanes and typhoons and great winds and earthquakes and things like that, but most of the time it's at a natural pace. That's what we need to have in our practice. So I made a reminder to myself to uh, help support me in my practice to remind myself that this unfolding process is happening in its own natural way, at its own pace, in its own uniqueness, the uniqueness of this body and mind and continuum, not in somebody else's. I mean, even though I practice for a long time already, relatively long, um, still, you know, I come to a, a place of practice on, uh, when I'm doing my yogi thing, every year, and I'll sit next to somebody or in back of somebody and they're not moving at all, you know, and I'm just all restless and body aches and everything and um, or just like nodding away. And the, I open my eyes and I'm comparing myself to that person in front of me just over and over again. And then, you know, comparing mind is a precursor to judging mind, is a precursor to criticizing mind, is a precursor to, like, I can't do this, and giving up. So really being able to catch oneself so early in the game um, when, before that starts happening, so we don't go there, and then we start being impatient with our practice. So careful of the comparing mind, by the way, because it can lead to all kinds of um, more suffering for us. And by the way, that sometimes I would find out, because I know for myself that I can sit and be really still and actually be pretty asleep, you know, <laughs> and um, <laughs> or just like off in la-la land thinking about one of my grandchildren or something. And so, you know, that person in front of me was probably a perfect yogi, but... there's another probability that that person was asleep and here I am comparing myself with something like that so it doesn't make much sense at all to do those kinds of things so the reminder to be patient that everything's unfolding in its own natural way and has its own unique pace and uniqueness just like the weather patterns do so we can look at what's going on with us as kind of weather patterns of the mind. So all I had to do was to keep showing up, to keep applying the balanced effort to practice and allow the process to unfold. And be aware of, as much as possible, those um, states of mind and bodily experiences that were more predominant than, in this case, we're were inclining towards the breath all the time. And that's, that's our practice, but other experiences become more predominant. So yes, acknowledge, be with them, acknowledge them. Be careful not to just talk about them in your mind, but really come close to them, feel them momentarily. Know what they are, name them if it, it needs to be acknowledged in that way. And then turn the mind back towards the breath. Gentle, soft, persevering, but clear, very directed. So patience is um, the antidote to striving and this culture is a culture of striving. It's sort of like striving is virtuous in, in our culture. I, I was raised in an ancient, uh, Asian culture and striving is virtuous and you, know, you strive to get good grades and better education and a good job and to raise our children the right way and all those things. But it can get us in trouble on the spiritual path. So we really have to be careful there. Hidden defilements come with striving. Of course, I mentioned attachment to results. We want them right away. Another one, these are basic ones, is aversion. If it isn't going more easily or the way we want it to go, then aversion comes. Disappointment comes. One of um, the teachers that came across my way, I think it was Swami Satchitananda, said, no appointment, no disappointment. So, you know, just to really, uh, do we have an appointment with this sitting, or with this retreat, or with ourselves in our lives, you know? We can aim towards something, but it's more helpful to be kind of an open-ended aim. So self-judging, that also, um, that is a hidden defilement that is really, really painful because then we feel like giving up. Someone said, um, uh, quoted Achan Shah. I didn't look it up to see if it was really true, but whatever, if he said this, whoever said it was really, um, this is incredibly... Uh, true and it, it really gives a picture the quote is patience is the supreme incinerator like you <laughs> you drop it in an incinerator of of patience whatever it is you know any one of those hidden defilements and it just burns up it can't survive in the in the realm of patience and also patience can bring you know when we're just just plodding along, plodding along, um, and it brings a lot of those beautiful qualities, like a sense of okayness. You know that we don't have to sense a sense sometimes that oh the mind isn't wanting anything. Wow, you know, or it isn't averse to very much at all, and or if something comes up like that, it's not sticky, or it isn't pulling or it, it just isn't something that the mind is identifying with. And then a lot of joy comes in our practice because we're not really striving for anything. We're just doing our practice, this step, the next step, this breath, the next breath. I remember once when I first started practicing, I wanted to, I, I would say, okay, if my uh, walking track would be from here to the, to the end, to where the Quan Yin is, I would say perfect mindfulness from here to there. Of course, you know, it took me a lot of days to realize it wasn't going to be perfect. Duh. So what I would do is I'd see a little pebble or rock and I'd say, okay, do the best to be mindful from here to there. And maybe that would be two and a half steps. And then it got to be just one step. You know, just this step and then, or just this breath. So sometimes that's what kind of practice we need to do with that kind of patience. So it allows the unfolding of whatever's happening to be just as it is. There's a great, uh, this, this uh, word allowing comes with patience. It's just allowing things to be as they are and then what's the natural response to that? being aware, and bringing maybe patience, compassion, whatever is appropriate at that moment. In in these cases I'm talking about patience. To bring patience with that awareness of this, the breath that we're coming back to over and over again, or whether it's changing nature of things, whatever it is. So there's this quiet inner joy and contentment that comes when we can just do that and when we don't have the wanting because there is this kind of contentment a lot of energy gets released a lot of, because wanting just sucks a lot of energy you just kind of it really drains our energy this wanting mind and so when we don't have it we have more of a sense of okay we can keep going there's energy to take the next step or do the next period of time. Whereas striving or pushing ourselves in an imbalanced way depletes our energy. So I'm remembering a time um, when I did a long practice of concentration, and this was uh, in, in the realm of metta. So in the early 1990s, um... Yeah, it was 1991. I was doing two months of practice, and it was all metta, and it was under the guidance of uh, Seda Upandita, one of my main teachers. And during that time, all I did was metta, just sitting, walking, going from here to get my shoes, going to the bathroom, brushing my teeth. I had to describe metta in general activities and in sitting and in walking, I had to describe um, everything that was happening. Um, even when I would be, one time I was asked, Were you doing metta when you were washing your face? You know? So it had to be all the time. And then I was only doing metta for almost the entire two months on one person to develop concentration, and that was on the benefactor. And so it was like, I just thought that would be impossible for me to do that, you know, for two whole months. And so, because I valued my time with him, I followed the directions, and that's what I did. And I realized that it wasn't the physical exertion that I really had to watch out for, it was the mental exertion, it was the mental energy that I had to bring forth continuously. And in order to do that, I really had to be gentle. Because if I forced it, I would just get exhausted. And so I would have to say these four phrases over and over again towards that benefactor over and over and over again. Either towards the benefactor would be the main thing, or maybe the phrases would be the main thing, or the sense of metta would be the main thing, whichever was happening in the moment. And so I realized that continuous, gentle way was completely energizing. And I had the ability to really stay with it for the whole time period of two months. Of course, there were times when I felt really down and out and I couldn't continue. But there were these two things that we've talked about, this uh, wittaka wichara, the aiming or directing the attention to the experience or the main object or um, the the primary object that we're going towards and then the sustaining the attention there for a period of time. So I think Sally said so beautifully from Achan Suchito bringing this energy to the object and then bearing with it, staying with it. And so... I noticed that just by doing those two things, everything else came about. All the factors that needed to be developed just came about naturally. I didn't have to look for them. Uh, during that time, I had no idea what I was doing anyway. I was following the instructions. I didn't know what jhanic factors meant or anything. Vitaka ichara. I just followed the instructions. And so... Just by doing, though, that gentle, persevering attention of aiming towards here for us, it's aiming towards the breath or whatever is more predominant if it's in the body, and then sustaining the attention there um, over and over and over again, it would be onward leading. So this is a gentle, persevering continuity of energy, not striving, not pushing, and this keeps the practice alive and it becomes, uh, we become able to do our practice in a long-term way. So keeping the current of energy going until there's a time when it comes about that it just comes naturally. You can't stop it from coming. can't stop this kind of concentration. It has its own life at some point. And then maybe you need to nourish it again when it falls back or weakens. But that's how it goes sometimes in our practice. So there was one time in the practice so I felt like I was faltering and I can't remember what was tripping me up. But I was giving up and stopping and I just had to, I just thought, well, I'm going to go to my room and flop on the bed and think about how am I going to tell the teacher I'm going to leave now? You know, that's what my idea was of stopping. And then, of course, I talked myself into, no, you just have to continue. And then what happened next was then I did the opposite. I was striving. And I got myself into a real tangle then. And um, then I heard in a Dhamma talk this sutta that was read and... um, and it really inspired me and had me, made me understand more deeply what I needed to do. And so I'm repeating this the sutta. It was translated a little bit different way than, than Sally read it, both beautiful. But this is when a, a being, a celestial being, asked the Buddha how he got through all the difficulties of his practice, how he crossed the ocean of suffering, the ocean of samsara, with all its strong currents. And so he was asked, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? And the Buddha answered, By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood? And he answered, When I came to a standstill, friend, I sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and not striving, I cross the flood. So it gave me a sense of to to reflect on what is the middle path here for myself. How can I keep this going? I've spent all this time, the sacrifice to be away from the family, to prepare to come here, and the resources that I had to spend to get there, how can I spend, make the best use of my time? So I really had to find a way to be balanced in my practice. So, of course, that helped me to realize over and over again that my practice is unfolding in a lawful way and just to stay with it. So pain in the body, something that we have to be patient with because we have a body. Pain happens because of stress in our lives and because our bodies are put together in certain ways. You know, that when we sit in certain ways for a long time, pain comes. Or um, maybe we've had injuries. So how can we face them with patience? Well, first of all, with patience is that gentle attitude. So be gentle with, our, with the pain that comes in our bodies. When pain comes, um, if it's gentle and compassionate for you to move, then move. But move in a way that's really slow and mindful as you move. Not just when something painful happens, you just do that knee-jerk thing of moving the body or uh, say, you know, I've got an itch, scratching the itch right away. Just notice what's happening for a little bit and see what you need to do. Don't go into, you know, ruining your knees because you insist on sitting in a certain way. Um, you notice all of us take the chair once in a while or sometimes all the time now. So it's really important to be practical and to be really gentle with ourselves, with pain. Have a sense of spaciousness around it and actually in a, in a sense of meditating with it have your attention be a little wider around it. Say if there's uh, back pain or, or hip pain, I, I get pain in my right hip because of arthritis. So my attention doesn't kind of go digging into it, you know, to kind of with um, a motive that is not seen of getting rid of it. You know, okay, if I'm just uh, with it, it's going to leave. But really just try to be with it in a spacious way. So I just kind of bring mindfulness around it in a hovering way. Bring awareness around it. But not so close up that it feels like pushing. Give it allowance to be. And sometimes that helps. Sometimes there's so much pain in the body, it becomes unbearable. Definitely move um, in a gentle way and re um, relocate your leg if you need to. That's really uh, important to do. But also um, have an attitude of spaciousness and gentleness. Continue to have that around it, a soft, soft attention. Um, So facing pain, uh, facing that kind of experience in the body, we need a lot of patience there also. Know what you need to have to do. With patience there can be wisdom to know exactly what you need to do. Patience in, in sleepiness, in sloth and torpor. We need perseverance. That's another quality that comes with patience. Practical things that we can do, persevering with uh, in persevering with uh, sloth and torpor. One thing we can do just sitting here is open our eyes. and. I know a lot of you, if not all of you, know this already. But I'm just, sometimes we say the obvious and we say, oh, I forgot about that. You know, so just opening our eyes can really be helpful in sloth and torpor. It brings light and energy into the eyes. Uh, Somewhere in the text, I don't know where, but it says uh, to pull your earlobes. And an acupuncture friend of mine said, it does do things, you know, to help us wake up. Um, and look at the Buddha's earlobes. He must have pulled his earlobes a lot, you know, so why not? And there are other things. You can stand up. Standing up is really good because you're likely not to fall over when when you're standing up. So stand up, but not on your Zabutan. Stand up on the floor. Um, and uh, if you need to go, you know, next to a wall, that that's okay too. I've only seen one person fall over, you know, when when they stood up because they were sleepy. But that person woke everybody else up, too. (laughs) So that was kind of good. So you can stand up. That's really virtuous to do. And uh, people will will, um, be glad that you did because now they can. You know, some people are kind of shy. So, anxiety, restlessness, there's a lot of anxiety happening in the world right now because of many, many conditions. There's, you know, nothing has happened bad in the world, but, well, a lot probably has, but there's nothing we need to tell you about. Uh, So, so don't worry. We didn't have elections yet. So, (laughs) that's for all beings, you know, whatever side you're on. Anyway, um, there's a lot of anxiety in the world, you know, and I feel it in myself too. Sometimes for no reason I'll I'll feel a sense of anxiety and wonder why, why do I feel that right now? Or, you know, restlessness in the body. So I'm putting those two things together, worry also. So when you have that that experience, sometimes you need to give it also a wide berth. So standing up helps, actually. Opening your eyes helps because it gives it a wider area to be in. So those things, when you're standing up, by the way, it's good to keep your eyes open and keep maybe your eyes facing downward. So that helps to kind of guard the sense doors. So those are practical things that you can do, but don't force anything. You know, Do it in a way that you're really not forcing, you're really not t- trying to push to get somewhere or to get rid of anything. This is a story I often tell that makes a good point, and it comes from the sports section of, the Honolulu, uh, of a Honolulu newspaper. At one time, you know, there were more Buddhists in, in Hawaii than any other... Um, religious uh, group and so we would have these kinds of things in in the sports section but it was also in the sports section because this has to do with a martial artist story of a martial artist so this was kind of had a moral to the story a young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist when he arrived at the dojo he was given an audience by the teacher the sensei what do you wish from me? the master asked, and the student said, "'I wish to be your student and become the finest Karateka in the land. How long must I study?' Ten years at least,' the master answered. "'What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? What if I do that? How long?' And the master said, "'Twenty years.'" What if I practice day and night with all my effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. How is it that each time I say I'll work harder, you tell me that it'll take longer, the boy asked. And he said, the master answered, The answer is clear. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. Meaning not full presence, right? Right. So by this story, we learn that it doesn't help to rush something as precious and important as the development of deep peace that we're learning how to do here, that kind of concentration that leads to complete, liberating understanding. A full and complete presence gives us more of clarity, a far-ranging view to find the way and to respond skillfully to whatever comes up gives us a wisdom to do that. So when I was younger, there was a great hunger for the Dhamma, a combination of spiritual urgency for me, and a good bit of impatience, and a greed for wanting to progress faster than was natural for me. So I heard from Suzuki Roshi, said that when your practice is rather greedy, that's when you become discouraged with it. And it gave me a sense of why I was discouraged a lot, you know because I wanted so much so fast I really it I had that sense of really wanting in a in a beautiful way, like all of you do because you're here. you have that spiritual urgency to be free in one way or another, you know completely free or whatever level of freedom, and when it becomes to you know wanting to grasp it or have it earlier than it's really ready to come, That's that Dharma greed is really painful. So I remember going to my first teacher, Manindraji, and telling him I felt so discouraged, and I could see how one insignificant stray thought was leading to another, you know, like, I'm not good enough, or um, I'm not doing as well as the next person, or not doing as well as I did last year, and I kept repeating that uh, habit and it got to be so that it gathered a lot of other similar thoughts and a lot of doubt about myself in practice. And it caused a huge overwhelm. And right away, Manindra said, Oh, this is yogi mind. Yogi mind. And yogi mind is when you know your mind goes off on a tangent and it just thinks, starts thinking irrationally. You know, like this pain in the knee means I'm never going to walk again, or something like that. Um, It could, so move if you need to move it. (laughs) So I went to Manindra and I said, I'm not any good at this. I can't do this practice. And one of the things he said to me was, he actually would admonish me a lot. If you don't have a teacher that admonishes you, um, you know, you're... you're, um, I think you could do better. <laughs> so I chose teachers who would admonish me. You know, who'd really tell me like it is. I know I'm I'm soft and gentle, but I can really go at it sometimes. And 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 you you learn how to say it like it is. A, a teacher can learn how to say it like it is without hurting your feelings, too. But Manindra would sometimes like I I'd be shocked at what he would say to me. This one time, when I said I wanted to go home, he said, we were in Maui and I was practicing in, in a, like in a bamboo forest there. It had a lot of bamboo and tropical stuff around, growth around, and he said, kind of impatiently in a way, he admonished me, he said, look, he said in his beautiful Indian accent, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle. I'm only asking you to be mindful. And I thought, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) So um, this yogi mind is, um, as someone quoted, the magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. So check out when you're doing that, you know, in your practice, that you're making something really small into something that doesn't need to be what you're making it to be. So Manindra pointed out that I was wanting or expecting practice to be other than it is, and I was having a hidden agenda. So really had to take a look at that. I heard an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama one time, and somebody asked him, have you made progress in your practice? And he responded something like this, I'm just paraphrasing. And he said, one year cannot see much. Five years, little. Ten years, some. Twenty years, yes. So, you know, when I heard that, it was early in my practice, I thought, well, who am I, you know, to think I'm going to get to this place? And besides, along the way, you just learn that it's such a natural unfolding. So we discover you have a lot of support when you have patience. You have equanimity, that non-reactive balance in practice. Um, It supports equanimity. It supports endurance, that gentle flowing strength. Suzuki Roshi calls this constancy, that long enduring heart and mind. It can be very right here, right now with each passing moment, but it's short moments many times. You really have that sense. It's short moments, many times. That's a sense that patience gives you. Short moments, many times. You can enjoy the journey or learn from the journey if it's not enjoyable, you know, if it's really difficult. So, a living example for me is this gentle flowing strength of Ang San Suu Kyi. You know, some of you, maybe most of you, know who she is. She's the democratic leader of the country of Myanmar or Burma. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. How many of you know who I'm talking about? Oh, good. Okay. And she initiated the nonviolent movement towards um, achieving democracy in Burma. Of course, it did become violent different times. And she spent most of two decades in some form of detention in her home and at one point in, in a public prison. So we, she reminds me of this gentle, flowing strength. And um, I look to her, you know, as, as a person who really inspires me by just who she is. She's totally, you know, very feminine woman. And I love the way, I, this is going off subject a little bit, but I love the way, you know, when I see her, she's got some flower in her hair. And uh, I read a biography about her from someone who was her attendant and she said that she took time to choose things that, you know, there's this um, kind of thing that we wear over our left shoulder in Burma and um, I think in in Indian it's called dupata. Am I right? Yeah, something like that. And, uh, yeah, and so... uh, And then her clothes would would just be beautifully matched. And so when people looked at her, they were just astounded by her intelligence and her beauty at the same time. And so, and she's beautiful inside. She's just got this incredible strength and wisdom. So she has this quality of non-opposition. She really knows how to make friends with everybody and she doesn't push against. She stays connected and influential with great integrity and without being forceful in her beingness. She can be strong but not a bully. And so she moves around the boulders and debris, and debris of the military politics in Burma all the time. And I've she's gathered a lot of strength and admiration from a lot of people, even Uh, people who are her so-called enemies. So she's been practicing, actually, metta. She practices loving-kindness, and she practices vipassana for many years, honoring the precepts, deeply developing all the paramis that I spoke about. And at one point, she was taken from her house, uh, arrest, and incarcerated in the public prison. And for something ridiculous, I won't even go into the story of that. But there was a news release describing the trial where she entered the room, and around the room were seated public officials and many of the military leaders. And so the description in the news media was like this She was serene, she was beautiful, she carried a deep sense of non harming as she entered the room, and friendship as she walked to her place. And then everybody was seated, you know, and out of honor to her, they stood up, all the military, all the Burmese politicians stood up, and they put their hands in pranam, and they just bowed to her. And they weren't expected to do that or anything. She was on trial. She was the prisoner. And they all bowed to her. I mean, that really touched me. Um, that kind of presence that she can hold in her life. So she's endowed with this kind of patience that sees a long road ahead and knows how to navigate it. And um, one time another interviewer asked her, because she has this great sense of seeing the capacity for goodness in everybody, the capacity for transformation, and uh, the video, I saw this video where the interviewer said, when you hear or see or know what the military establishment is doing to the people of your country, don't you want to bring them down? And she said with her expressive eyes were so incredulous. She said, "Oh no, not at all. I want to raise them to their potential of integrity." And that's how she sees people, even her Her foremost, the foremost people who seem to be against what she's doing. So there's a lot that comes with patience, gentle flowing endurance, equanimity, power, the power of of inner beauty, of strength, um, wisdom that comes with it, all these beautiful qualities, ability to know how to navigate our path. So here's something um, that can help us lead the way towards the next days, um, towards being more patient with ourselves and having that gentle, soft, but clear direction in our practice. And this is an excerpt from Lama Gendan Rinpoche in a piece he called... Free and easy, a spontaneous Vajra song from the Tibetan tradition. Happiness and peace cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but it is already possible in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body or mind has no real importance at all, has no lasting reality whatsoever. Why identify with it and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up, falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything, And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax, this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do or undo, Nothing to force, nothing to want, nothing missing. So let's sit for just a moment and and let those words dissolve. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Half an hour to walk and see you back in here.